The reading this morning is from John chapter 16, starting halfway through verse 4, and that's on page 902 of the Church Bibles, starting halfway through verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is it that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. 
His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know what you now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, thank you very much for reading those verses for us this morning. This passage that we're going to be thinking about from John chapter 16 contains one of the great aha moments in Scripture. You're all familiar, I guess, with an aha moment. Perhaps you're on a Zoom meeting and you're busy getting excited telling all the other folks on the meeting about what you had for dinner last night, but you can see the other folks on the screen are looking a bit confused. And then you realize it, you're on mute. Aha, this is why it's not working. It's sometimes called a eureka moment, isn't it? From the Greek word eureka, which means I found it. And that's supposed to have been said by the Greek mathematician Archimedes. He shouted it out after discovering that a body in a fluid is acted on by an upward force equal to the weight of the fluid that the body displaces, which may as well be Greek as far as I'm concerned. As the Gospel of John begins, there's a eureka moment very early on in the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 45, where Philip finds his friend Nathaniel and tells him, we've found him, the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. We've found him. It's not exactly the word eureka, the form is a little bit different, but it's the same root verb. The disciples make a discovery. This Jesus is the one predicted in the Old Testament. Eureka. But actually, if you read on through the Gospel of John, you discover there's actually a great deal of mystery and confusion about who this Jesus really is and what he's come to do. The discoveries are still mostly to come. So Nicodemus, you remember him? He's the teacher of Israel in chapter 3, but he doesn't understand what Jesus tells him about the new birth. When Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the disciples see the palm branches and they hear the crowds shout, Hosanna, but John the writer tells us they did not understand these things. And again, when Jesus washes Peter's feet in chapter 13, he tells Peter, you do not understand now, but afterwards you'll understand. Well, there's another good example of this failure to get what Jesus is talking about in chapter 10. And there in verse 6, John tells us that Jesus was using a figure of speech. That's the word he uses. But the disciples did not understand, John says, what he was saying to them. And this idea of Jesus speaking in figures of speech appears again in the verses we've just had read to us from chapter 16. Have a look if you've still got it open there with me at verse 25. Chapter 16, verse 25, Jesus says to the disciples, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. And again, it seems 
the disciples don't get it. We've seen that in the verses this morning. Verse 17, some of the disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? Verse 18, they were saying, what does he mean? We do not know what he's talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew they wanted to ask him what he meant. But back in verse 5, none of you asks me, Jesus had said. They're like a group of school children, and they all know that they don't understand what the teacher's saying, but nobody's brave enough to put up their hand and say, sir, miss, what are you talking about? Well, I wonder if you've ever had that kind of experience with Jesus' words, like the disciples. What is this that he says to us? What does he mean? As they say, we don't know what he's talking about. If only we could ask. That's the disciples' problem. They don't understand. But there's also a promise for them. So look back at verse 25. I've said these things, Jesus says to you, in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly, frankly, boldly, holding nothing back about the Father. There's an hour coming, and the disciples don't have to wait very long for it, just four verses. Here's the aha moment, or it's an ah moment in our church Bibles. Verse 29, ah, they say, literally, behold, look, now, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. We get it at last. So I wonder if you've experienced an aha moment with Jesus. Perhaps you suddenly realized who Jesus really is. He's not just a religious leader or a moral teacher. He's the eternal Son of God become flesh. The Lord become lowly, the Creator who's entered into His creation. Or perhaps you suddenly realized what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to talk about the way to be saved or to point us in the direction of salvation. No, He came to be the Savior, the one through whom we must be saved, and by His sacrificial and sin-bearing death, He purchased life for all of God's chosen ones, saving them from sin and death and hell forever. Or perhaps you realized what it is that Jesus requires of you. He doesn't just require us to turn over a new moral leaf and give Him half a day a week. If you read through John's gospel, you see it. He tells us we need to cast everything on Him, to eat His flesh, to drink His blood, to walk every moment in His light to enter into eternal life by doing the one work that God the Father requires of us above all other works, to believe in His one-of-a-kind, unique Son. Maybe your aha moment happened quickly. Maybe it was a process over many years, but either way, for you, the penny has dropped. You've discovered more of the truth about Jesus, or better perhaps, Jesus Himself has revealed more of the truth to you. Well, I don't know about all of you, but in my years as a Christian, I've experienced many of these aha moments with Jesus, and I expect there'll be more to come. Our Bible passage today contains many of Jesus' deep 
teachings. And to be honest with you, as I've been preparing for this sermon, there have been some of them that I just don't think I've fully understood. But this idea of discovery or revealing of the truth runs like a silver thread through the passage we've had read to us this morning, and I hope it'll help us to get a handle on what we're hearing here. Maybe you'll even experience an aha moment as these words of Jesus are unpacked for us this morning. I hope so. It's my prayer for us. So, I think we can helpfully divide the chapter into three sections. It's divided for you in the church Bibles anyway, but I've given them slightly different titles with a little bit of alliteration, which you'll have to excuse just to help us to remember them, give us something to hang on them. First then, verses 4b, the second half to 15, the Spirit tells the truth. And you'll find these headings on the back of the orders of service. The Spirit tells the truth. Verses 16 to 24, sorrow turns to transport. And verses 25 to the end, secrets translate into trust. So, let's start with verses 4b to 15. The Spirit tells the truth. The key thought in these verses is that it's going to be the Holy Spirit, the helper, the one whom Jesus is going to send, who's going to tell the truth. Put differently, the Holy Spirit is going to be the efficient cause of every single aha moment of every believer until the end of the world. So, we see He's the guiding Spirit. He's the speaking Spirit, the declaring Spirit, the Spirit of truth, He's called. He doesn't draw attention to Himself, the Holy Spirit. Instead, verse 14, He glorifies Jesus because He takes what belongs to Jesus and He declares it to Jesus' disciples. And we see this vital revealing work of the Holy Spirit here to Jesus' disciples in two main ways. So, first, the Holy Spirit gives God's people the words of Jesus in the Bible. Following the Apostle Paul, we say that the Holy Spirit inspired or breathed out all the words of Scripture. And that's what Jesus is saying that the Spirit will do here, because in verse 13, He will guide the disciples into all truth about Jesus by speaking and declaring Jesus' words. Now, I want us to notice that this particular promise isn't made to each and every believer in the same way. It's made to the apostles in particular, those first followers of Jesus appointed by Him. Jesus is talking about authority in the context here, verse 13. And He says that the words that come with His very own divine authority will come by the Spirit to the apostles and then through the apostolic writings preserved for us in Scripture to each and every believer down the ages. Those same words come to us. And Jesus is talking about a unique word, an authoritative word. That's why the Bible reveals the true Jesus to us. We don't find Him elsewhere. We find Him in Scripture. As the evangelist Rico Tice puts it, the Lord Jesus walks off the pages of Scripture as Scripture is read. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's that work that sets up our aha moments as we read the Bible and hear it preached. 
And it's one very good reason why the Spirit is described as the comforter, the advocate, the helper, because He communicates Jesus to us. What a wonderful ministry He has. The second revealing and truth-telling work of the Spirit that Jesus talks about here is in verses 8 to 11, verses that Robin read at the start of our service. Verse 8, when He comes, He'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, the key word here is convict. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts. The original word that's translated convict here gives us our English word, elenctics. Now, that's probably not a word that you're very familiar with. So, let me share a little bit from Wikipedia. It's the source of every non-spiritual aha moment I've ever had. According to Wikipedia, elenctics is concerned with persuading people of other faiths or no faith of the truth of the gospel message with an end to producing in them an awareness of and sense of guilt for their sins, a recognition of their need for God's forgiveness, repentance, and faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You get some great things on Wikipedia, don't you? Maybe you didn't know it, but if you're a Christian here this morning, you're also an elenctician, because this, I trust, it, is, I trust, is what all of us who believe in Jesus are engaged in doing. It's what Yuko and I try to do in Japan. It's what others being sent out this morning are doing in other parts of the world. It's what many of you do here in Edinburgh. But what John 16 verses 8 to 11 is telling us is that the supreme work in this regard is done by the Holy Spirit. He's the elinctician-in-chief. He's the one who gives not-yet-believers the most important aha moments of all, as they're convicted concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what Jesus says. In other words, that they see that they're sinners under the righteous judgment of God. The Spirit tells them. They see that there's absolutely no other way to be right with God than through the one-of-a-kind Savior whom God has provided, even Jesus, because the Spirit convicts them. And they see that the devil and all his works, including his array of false gospels, have been thoroughly defeated by Jesus in his cross and his resurrection because the Spirit convicts them. And as people believe these things about Jesus, they're saved. They say yes to God's gospel. They say yes to Jesus. They have eternal life. This is why Jesus came. So, aha becomes Abba, Father. Eureka, I found it, becomes hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let me ask you this. Is this an aha moment that you have experienced have you found the Savior as He finds you with His message of life? Have you been convicted by the Spirit who leads you to faith? Here's the all-important thing, folks. Listen to the Spirit of truth and receive the one He testifies about. 
Second this morning, sorrow turns to transport. This is verses 16 to 24. Again, apologies for the forced alliteration. I searched high and low to find a synonym for joy that begins with T. So I'm not talking about planes and trains and automobiles, but deep, deep rejoicing. And this is another kind of aha moment for the disciples. Jesus says to them back in verse 6, sorrow has filled your heart. And there's a reason for this sorrow. If you've been following through this series in these summer weeks in John's gospel, you'll remember the context. This is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He is about to leave his disciples. One of them will betray him. And he tells them back in chapter 13, where I'm going, you cannot come. In the next chapter, chapter 14, he says, I'm going away. I'll no longer talk much with you. And he tells them in the next chapter, chapter 15, the world hates you. And he tells them at the beginning of our chapter, just before our verses, they'll put you out the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when, when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. No wonder the disciples' hearts are filled with sorrow. Jesus is going away, and anyone who bears witness to Jesus will know trouble in the world. But what we have in verses 16 to 24, this middle section, is a precious promise that's going to change everything for this sorrowful little band of disciples, because Jesus isn't just going away. He's coming back. He isn't just going to die. He's going to rise again. The disciples don't yet understand what Jesus is talking about, but the aha moment is coming as surely as the dawn follows the darkness. They're going to meet the risen Jesus. There will be a time of suffering. Yes, Jesus is clear about it, frank about it. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. This is realistic, isn't it? It's raw. Things are going to get tough and tougher, but it doesn't stop there. But, he says, your sorrow will turn to joy. In verse 21, like the joy of a woman who's given birth and no longer remembers her anguish, Jesus says, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Those words, I will see you again. That's what makes the difference. Of course, we all know the end of the story. Jesus was crucified, but three days later, he rose again from the grave. He showed himself to his disciples, and the last couple of chapters of John's gospel are full of the stories of aha moments as Jesus' disciples meet him face to face. Mary Magdalene, she thinks he's the gardener. She did not know it was Jesus, John says, but then he calls her name, Mary. And she recognizes him. And then he stands among the disciples on the Sunday evening, and he shows them his hands and his side, and they believe, and John says, then the disciples were glad. What an understatement. 
What about poor Thomas? For a whole week, he wrestles with his doubts. He can't quite bring himself to understand what the others are assuring him is the truth against the evidence of his senses. And then Jesus appears right in front of him. Put your finger here, Jesus says. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And there's more, because the disciples are going to see Jesus ascend on high back to the Father. They'll approach Jesus. They'll approach the Father through Jesus in prayer, and Jesus will intercede on their behalf. I think that's probably what Jesus is talking about in verses 23 and 24 in our text today, although these verses are rather difficult for me to understand. But this seems to be why the disciples' ongoing joy is guaranteed. Now, all of this happened 2,000 years ago. John wrote it down so that we might believe in Jesus and by believing have life in his name. Like the disciples, we can have the joy that cannot be taken away by believing in the risen Jesus and having life in his name. But there's another application, I think, of these verses beyond the joy we receive by believing. Because we believers now are, just like the disciples back then, waiting for Jesus to return. We're waiting, not that we're twiddling our thumbs and uh, with nothing to do, hanging around. We've got a job to do, yes, and Jesus has equipped us for that job. He's filled us with his spirit. That's why he can say to his disciples, it's even to their advantage that he goes away. Because like them, we can have the spirit. We have the sure and certain word of scripture made more certain. But we also have struggles, do we not? We also have sorrow in our hearts. The world sometimes hates us because we follow Jesus. Maybe some of you are going back to school next week. Maybe you're teaching there. And it's not easy in your workplace. Maybe it's not easy in your family. It's not easy with some of your friends. But just like the disciples, we also have a promise. You will see me. I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Tribulation turns to transport. Grief turns to gladness. Sorrow turns to joy. Is that a day that you're looking forward to? It's a moment of revelation. It's an aha moment that all Christians will experience. Some will not taste death first. Others will see it, see him in glorious resurrection bodies. Jesus revealed in all his glory, all heaven and earth bowed before him. Let me please say a word to anyone this morning for whom thought of that day, the idea of Jesus returning, provokes anything less than joyful anticipation, dread perhaps, ridicule perhaps, or just uncertainty perhaps. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He came 2,000 years ago to die and rise again so that whoever believes in him might have life forever 
and a restored relationship with God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. God demonstrated His power by raising this Jesus from the dead. He came back, and the disciples saw Him, and their sorrow was turned to joy. It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's the experience of 11 ordinary men who followed an extraordinary leader. And their experience is recorded for us so that we might know that it's true. Believe in the one who is himself, truth personified. The message of these 11 men changed the world. And most of them, you'll know, died for that message, knowing fine well that it was true, even though they and their message were despised and rejected. And they experienced, I'm sure, even in death, a joy that could not be taken away. This Jesus is coming back to judge the world, to judge me, to judge you. Yes, that is a fearful day, but the wonderful message of the Bible is that the judge and the Savior are one and the same Jesus Christ. If you believe in Him, He'll forgive your sins You'll have nothing to fear, no condemnation to dread, no sorrow on that day, just joy, the joy of the rescued, the joy of the redeemed, the joy of life that Jesus Christ gives to all who believe. The third and final section of our verses this morning, 25 to the end, I've called Secrets Translate to Trust. And this is taking us back to where we started this morning with the aha moment of verse 29. Ah, they say, behold, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. We've got it at last, they say. But as we finish this morning, I've just got two brief observations based on this section that I want to apply to us all. First, doesn't it strike you that they haven't really got it at all? I mean, they still don't seem to get the part about Jesus rising from the dead. It's a pretty important part of the message, isn't it? Peter is about to deny Jesus three times. The rest of them, apart from John, are about to cut their losses and run. And after the crucifixion, John makes a point of telling us that the disciples are still fearful. They're still confused. He says that until they witnessed the empty tomb, Peter and John, Peter and John, we're talking about the pillars, they still did not understand the Scripture. What do we see from this? Well, do we not see that coming to know and learn and trust and follow and obey and love Jesus is a process? Yes, that process begins with faith and repentance, and we enter into life. There's a one-off moment of translation from death to life, from being under the condemnation and judgment of God to being a recipient of the mercy of God, and that happens in an instant. But we need to keep on going. We might think, we've got it now, we understand, but if the experience of the disciples is anything to go by, if my experience is anything, if your experience is anything to go by, there's always more to come. I need to be a bit careful here. I'm not suggesting to you that we somehow move on beyond the basic gospel message 
the simple gospel message that a child can understand from Scripture to something more esoteric and complex. No, I'm suggesting that that same simple gospel message is far richer and far deeper than we often think. It has depths to plumb, mysteries to mine, riches to unpack that we're not going to exhaust in this lifetime. So I hope that's an encouragement to us all to keep on going in our walk with Jesus. Some of you here have been following Him for many, many years. Well, there's more to come. Second, does it not strike you that when the disciples say to Jesus, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech, Jesus doesn't actually change the way He speaks one little jot. I mean, is it just me, or is what Jesus says here, and then right on straight after here, just as figurative, that's the word they use, as everything he said beforehand? In fact, in the following chapter, chapter 17, Jesus is about to embark on what's known as his high priestly prayer. And I was preaching on part of that passage in Oxford a couple of weeks ago. I spent a long time preparing for the passage, trying to understand it. And let me tell you, it's not simple at all. What are we supposed to learn from this? Let me suggest that the disciples have not had their aha moment because Jesus has fundamentally switched, changed his language, started speaking down to them, if you like, or meeting them at their level. It's not different. No, what's happening here is that they're being given a new level of spiritual insight, understanding. We call this illumination, okay? The lights come on, the sun shines. It's the work of the Spirit. It's like God turns on the lights of your understanding, my understanding, so that what was previously in the darkness becomes manifest. It's the subjective side of revelation, if you want to put it that way. God does a spiritual work in our hearts so that we understand. We receive the message. In fact, we receive Him as we believe in Jesus. That's the teaching of the Bible as a whole. And there's a negative and a positive side to that. Negatively, it means that as fallen creatures, and that's what we are, we cannot understand the truth about Jesus Christ by ourselves without the help of the Spirit. So, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 puts it like this. The natural person, it's the person who is not changed by the Spirit, left to his or her own devices, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them. Not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It's the negative side, but on the other side, positively, we find God gives his Spirit to shine revelation light into our hearts so that we can understand and believe. That's what the Apostle Paul said earlier in that same chapter of 1 Corinthians. We've received the Spirit, he says. We've received the Spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. This is what missionaries pray for as we hold out the word of life in Japan and every other part of the world. It's what happens here in Edinburgh. Will you pray it for us in Japan? Will you pray it for those who are heading out to other parts of the world? 
I've called this final section, Secrets Translate into Trust. One New Testament word for secret is mysterion. Okay, it gives us the English word mystery. Another word is crypto, not a reference to Bitcoin or anything like that. It's about what's hidden. And this is what the Bible says the gospel message was in ages past. A mystery, hidden, crypto, a secret. But now, as the Spirit works to bring understanding, mysteries are made manifest. Secrets are revealed. This is what's going on for the disciples in John 16 with this aha moment with Jesus. It's a step towards trust, a step towards faith. And that's ultimately where faith ends, with trust in the person of Jesus, laying everything on Him, our hopes on Him, our fears on Him, our eternal destiny on Him. The disciples tell Jesus in verse 30, we believe that you came from God. It's a good start, isn't it? We believe that you came from God. Do you believe that? They've got a long way to go, for sure. There's persecution to come. There's much struggle to come. But Jesus will give them peace in the midst of persecutions. That's what He promises right at the end there in verse 33. Take heart, He says. Be courageous. The victory against the world and against its prince, the devil, is complete. What an encouragement for any family who would be sent out from here to other parts of the world. What an encouragement for me and Yuko returning to Japan. What an encouragement, I hope, for you. Take heart. Well, we need to finish. And 2,000 years since these momentous words were spoken, God is still doing His work. Jesus is still speaking plainly, yes, plainly to anyone with ears to hear. The Holy Spirit is still the Spirit of truth. He's still the helper convicting sinners, bringing God's children to trust more and more in Jesus Christ. The Father is still sovereign over His world in revelation, in judgment, and in salvation. Peace and joy are still offered to those who believe in the same Lord Jesus and in His words. Let's keep on doing that. Let's keep on doing that. Let's keep on hearing. Let's keep on believing. Let's keep on following our Lord Jesus and keep on rejoicing, for Jesus has overcome the world. Take heart. Let's pray. Our loving Father in heaven, we thank You for Jesus, the victorious Savior. We thank You for the Helper, Spirit of Truth, who brings us to repentance and faith in Jesus. We thank you that we will see Jesus face to face one day, but that now by faith your Spirit leads us on as we grow in our relationship with Him. We praise you that this is all of grace. We pray that this knowledge that is eternal life would spread across your world in Edinburgh, in the Middle East, in Japan, and wherever darkness now reigns in hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.